This podcast is sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. My name is Clay Maitland. I'm chairman of the MMPC, which was formed in order to support the U.S. flag Merchant Marine. We hope you enjoy the uh, podcast and welcome your comments and suggestions. A nearly 40-year-old U.S.-built ship faces a punishing storm not long after leaving port. It succumbs to towering waves, capsizes before its crew is able to board its lifeboats, and then sinks. More than 30 merchant mariners die in the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. It sounds familiar, but it's not El Faro. But maybe the sinking of the Marine Electric has some lessons that are still useful 33 years later. This is The Sunken Lighthouse, an audio podcast series by Tradewinds and sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition, focused on the October loss of the cargo ship El Faro. I'm Eric Martin, a reporter at Tradewinds, a newspaper that covers the international shipping industry. This is the third installment in our series on El Faro, which took 33 lives when it went down off the Bahamas in a powerful hurricane. We're exploring the casualty in meticulous detail, while two U.S. agencies try to figure out what happened to this ship. But before we delve into this episode's line of inquiry, a brief update on the investigation into El Faro's sinking. The U.S. Coast Guard's Marine Board of Investigation is starting its second round of hearings in its probe of El Faro's sinking. The two-week session might be followed by a third round, which could depend on whether authorities are able to recover the ship's voyage data recorder, or VDR from 15,000 feet below the ocean's surface. The good news is that even though crews were not able to recover the VDR in this pass, there is growing optimism that they'll be able to retrieve it and unlock its secrets. In the meantime, a legal battle over the sinking continues, but El Faro's owner, Tote Maritime, has already reached settlement deals with the majority of the families of crew members who lost their lives. Now, this episode, and its look at the three-decade-old sinking of the Marine Electric. It may seem at first blush like we're diverting from our course, but trust me, we're not. The Marine Electric was the last U.S. flag shipping casualty with a death toll of El Faro's magnitude, and marine accident investigations aren't just a search for a cause. They're an effort to find ways to prevent similar accidents from happening again. At their best, these probes treat casualties as teachable lessons. And I'm not alone at looking back at the investigation into the Marine Electric. El Faro investigators have read the Marine Electric report too, as we'll hear in a few minutes. Now, there are a few similarities between the Marine Electric and El Faro. The ships were about the same age and even built at the same shipyards. But the differences are considerable. The Marine Electric was a coal carrier that was converted from what's called a T2 tanker, a class of ships that were built to supply Navy vessels with fuel during World War II. By the early 1950s, the Coast Guard already found them to be prone to splitting in two in cold weather, a problem that was addressed by wrapping them in steel belts that would prevent cracks from spreading across the hull. This is Robert Frump, a journalist who wrote a book about the marine electric sinking. They kept them in service for 40 years and said they were safe. And they sank, and they sank, and they sank. And there were like 500 lives that were lost on these ships up until the time the Marine Electric sailed. And, and there, were, there were two Marine Board of Investigations that said they were unsafe. And the 
and the Coast Guard kept them, uh, and, the, and the National Transportation Safety Board kept them at sea. By contrast, El Faro was a roll-on, roll-off vessel, a Roro that was part of a whole new generation of ships. And the fact that there has not been so deadly a marine casualty under the U.S. flag in 30 years must be some sort of sign that this was a stauncher generation of vessels. But it's fairly rare for the Coast Guard to convene a Marine Board of Investigation, the highest level of probe by the agency for a shipping casualty. And it did for El Faro and the Marine Electric. In both cases, we see factors common to ships that trade in the U.S. domestic markets protected by the Jones Act shipping law. For example, there's the same cast of organizations and agencies overseeing safety, primarily the U.S. Coast Guard and American Bureau of Shipping. So I wanted to know, if there are any lessons from the marine electric loss that we seem not to have learned 30 years later, there are a few candidates that are immediately apparent. But before we get to that, let's take a trip back to 1983, as the Marine Electric was starting what would be its final voyage. This narrative is based largely on the Marine Board of Investigation report, and Frump's book, Until the Sea Shall Free Them. It was raining and stormy as the Marine Electric, laden with coal, started its journey from Hampton Roads, Virginia. Out in the Atlantic, the winds were gale force and the seas were what the Coast Guard described as boisterous. The storm strengthened, and by dawn the next day, the waves were 25 to 40 feet high. The seas were coming over the ship's bow, over the cargo hatches. But this was winter in the Atlantic, and this crew had seen it before. But for another vessel, the fishing boat called the Theodora, this storm was a serious problem. The Theodora was taking on water, and a Coast Guard helicopter was sent to bring it pumps to keep it afloat. The Coast Guard called the Marine Electric in to help, asking it to divert its course toward the fishing vessel and stand by. Making its turn in the heavy waves was no small task for the old ship, but once the maneuver was done, the ride to the Theodora was easier. But after the Marine Electric arrived at the scene, the seas worsened, pounding the coal carrier, leading its crew to warn the Coast Guard that if it held the position much longer, there would be two ships in trouble. Later, the Theodora no longer needed help, and the Marine Electric resumed its course to Somerset, Massachusetts. As the ship continued to face the storm on its original track, all seemed normal. Waves came over the bow, but the ship plowed through them, and lifted back above the water. Then, at about 2.30 a.m., Captain Philip Coral woke the ship's chief mate, Bob Cusick. I think she's settling by the head, he told him. Coral thought the front of the ship might be slowly going down. It would take a trained eye to see it in these tumultuous seas, and even Coral wasn't sure that that was what he was seeing. But Cusick recognized it as soon as he got to the bridge. The seas were coming over the bow, but the bow wasn't pushing them off. The waters were lingering. The ship was slowly sinking under the waves. The Marine Electric put out a distress call to the Coast Guard. I'm going down by the head, Coral said. The ship, that is, was taking on water in its foresection. As some crew prepared the lifeboats, pumps were activated to remove the water. But the forward deck was now underwater and the ship had a five to six degree list. The waves rolled it even further, to between 15 and 20 degrees. 
At 4.10, the Coast Guard said a helicopter would be on scene in a half hour. It would be too late for most. At 4.13, Captain Coral announced the crew was abandoning ship. The vessel was now tipping with a 15-degree list. As crewmen were attempting to board the lifeboats, the ship unexpectedly rolled over. Before the boats could be released, those on deck were thrown into the sea. The men in the engine room didn't have time to make it out. One crewman made it into a life raft, but despite all his efforts, couldn't get his colleagues into it. Others latched onto what they could find, an oar, a life ring. Those not pulled down with the ship were then taken by the cold, drifting off one by one. 31 died. Just three were rescued alive. The Marine Board of Investigation, convened for the casualty, later determined that the capsizing and sinking of the Marine Electric were a result of flooding of the ship's forward spaces. Water had entered through the deteriorated plating on the ship's cargo hatch and through wasted areas on the main deck's plating, and there was plenty of blame to go around. The report concluded that the Coast Guard inspectors should have seen the problems on the Marine Electric. The American Bureau of Shipping a classification society that also inspected the ship, should have caught them too. The ship was, quote, poorly managed and horribly maintained by owner marine transport lines, the investigators concluded. The Marine Electric's permanent captain, who was on vacation at the time of the sinking, failed to report its problems, and the board concluded that many more crew members might have survived if they had just been given survival suits, which weren't required at the time. The Marine Board of Investigation was uncharacteristically biting in its conclusions, and its recommendations were far-reaching. Much of its willingness to ring safety alarm bells was credited to member Dominic Caliccio, a former merchant mariner who approached the investigation with rigor. According to Frump's book, he even threatened to leak the draft Marine Electric report to the press if the Coast Guard Commandant didn't finalize it. It was seen as career suicide at the time though the Coast Guard gave him a posthumous award in 2012. The Marine Electric casualty had a significant impact on shipping safety. It helped spur the U.S. requirement that ships have survival suits for cold weather runs, and it led the Coast Guard to crack down on older ships with enhanced inspections. In addition to the Coast Guard investigation, the Marine Electric sinking was the subject of a major investigative series by Frump and fellow reporters at the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. Frump, who has been following the El Faro investigation as well, sees the approximate vessel age as no small similarity with the Marine Electric. There is an attitude uh, within the industry uh, that ships somehow can last forever if they're only properly maintained. Um, and to me, this is, uh, I mean, it's a truism. Uh, if, if you properly maintain something, uh, it, it will work. But with 40-year-old ships, they work until they don't. And, and quite frequently, the don't is measured in 
hours and days, not in weeks, months, or, or years. But after the Marine Electric sinking, the Coast Guard's crackdown on the T-2 tankers and their brethren did not draw a bright line on age. Rather, authorities essentially inspected these old ships out of existence. When you came out of that Marine Board of Investigation, the Coast Guard saw after that report that, um, you know, it wasn't just some sort of uh, magic age. It wasn't a gauging of the of the hull for thickness. Uh, it, it was a thorough professional inspection that showed that a ship could operate in a sustained manner. And out of that Marine Board of Investigation, the Coast Guard, in a concerted way, assigned its senior traveling members and inspectors to take a look at all overage ships. And within an 18-month period, they forced 70 of them into the scrapyard. And the way they did this was um, just persistent inspections. The Coast Guard also intended to crack down on the type of lifeboats and lifeboat launching systems that the Marine Electric had on board. And this is where we get to another major lesson that was never learned from the Marine Electric sinking. Back in the first episode of this podcast, I explained that El Faro had open-type lifeboats rather than the fully enclosed lifeboats that are more commonly found on modern vessels. Now. There's no evidence that these enclosed lifeboats would have saved any of the 33 men and women on board El Faro. In fact, some marine safety experts have told me that since it was listing in heavy seas, it's unlikely these enclosed lifeboats would have helped, if they were positioned on the side of the ship as the actual boats were. But these lifeboats' continued presence on this and nearly every other U.S.-built ship of this age has raised questions about the grandfathering of rules for life-saving equipment on vessels. If the master had ordered the crew to abandon ship, this crew would have had to do so in lifeboats that would leave them unprotected from the raging seas, in lifeboats that are banned on most other ships. Maybe it's a hypothetical when it comes to El Faro, but the possibility of abandoning ship is what lifeboats are there for. Enclosed lifeboats increase the odds of survival for seafarers because they protect them from the elements, though they're not a guarantee of survival. Uh, why in 2015 is United States flag cargo ship sailing with open gravity drop lifeboats uh, that were present on the uh, on the Lusitania a hundred years ago? Um, you know why why was that why was that permitted? Why was there an exemption? In the final Marine Electric report. Coast Guard Admiral James Gracie, who as Commandant was the agency's top official, wrote that more lives would have been saved if the ship had the lifeboat systems required by the upcoming updates to the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, or SOLAS. Those new rules, which would come into force in 1986, would require fully enclosed lifeboats with gravity davit launching systems. They would only apply to newly built ships, however. But the Commandant, wanted to take it further. Captain Jason Neubauer, chairman of the Coast Guard Board investigating El Faro sinking, read the Commandant's recommendation at a hearing three decades later. The Coast Guard will propose that all existing inspected cargo and tank vessels on ocean and coastwise voyages 
presently equipped with open lifeboats and gravity davits, be fitted with enclosed lifeboats and launching systems that meet Seoul 7043 no later than July 1st, 2001. So if the Coast Guard intended to put an end to open lifeboats on all ships under its jurisdiction, why were there open lifeboats on El Faro in 2015? And why are there so many open lifeboats on U.S.-built ships now, 15 years after that deadline? In the hearings on El Faro, Neubauer posed this same question to Captain Kyle McAvoy. The head of commercial vessel compliance at the Coast Guard, McAvoy said there were discussions in the 1990s at the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, to require older ships to be retrofitted so that they have enclosed lifeboats. And the U.S. Coast Guard proposed a rule of its own. As usual, that was open to public comment. Uh, I believe there were comments on the record from, for the notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, that came from within industry talking about potential competitive disadvantage and the difficulties of putting enclosed lifeboats onto, retrofitting enclosed lifeboats onto currently, uh, onto vessels currently equipped with open lifeboats. Parallel or around that time, conversations at IMO also occurred, and I believe the IMO, and I'd have to check this, decided that they were not going to make a retrofit be required. So we have a difference in a new build versus a retrofit. And I think some of the logic at the time also dealt with, you know, not, so earlier I've testified that age is not a factor, but here was a case where they used age to think that um, most vessels of a certain age would be out of service within the next 10 years. The, the expected life cycle of a vessel is maybe 20 years, 30 years. I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, but from a naval architect's point of view, early in my studies, you know, 20 years was always thrown out as the life cycle of a, of a vessel. However, you know, just like automobiles, they can last longer if taken care of. Um, so, because the IMO, my understanding is that because the IMO chose not to make the requirement to uh, retrofit to cover lifeboats, um, the issue was not pursued further in the federal rulemaking project at the time. And so, the proposal in Washington to require enclosed lifeboats fizzled out because they would put older U.S.-built ships at a competitive disadvantage. As I was working on this episode, I remembered that I've been on a U.S.-built ship that was older than El Faro, moored in New York City. The Empire State is used to train cadets, the next generation of U.S. mariners, at SUNY Maritime College. It's 56 years old, and its orange enclosed lifeboats are visible when you drive by on Throgs Neck Bridge. I also checked with Massachusetts Maritime Academy, whose training ship is nearly as old. Those open lifeboats have been replaced, too. Captain Joe Murphy, a professor who teaches survival at the school, says he's a proponent of enclosed lifeboats. He told me each one costs about $250,000, or about $500,000 for a pair on each ship. There was another key recommendation of the Coast Guard panel that investigated the marine electric sinking and it was declared dead on arrival. 
Remember Dominic Caliccio? He was willing to risk his Coast Guard career to question his own agency. And that includes the way it inspected these older ships. And it includes the Coast Guard's delegation of much of its authority to classification societies, the organizations hired by ship owners to ensure their ships meet technical standards. For most U.S. ships, that classification society is the American Bureau of Shipping, or ABS, a nonprofit organization that inspected both the Marine Electric and El Faro. The Marine Board of Investigation found that in 1981, an experienced ABS surveyor issued what's called a load line certificate for the Marine Electric without inspecting its hatch covers, which should have been checked. The board said the surveyor may have spent as little as 30 minutes on that ship, carrying out an incomplete and inaccurate survey. The panel concluded that the classification surveys were, quote, oriented toward protecting the best interests of marine insurance underwriters, unquote, and the inspections were paid for by ship owners, making surveyors subject to their influence. An organization paid by ship owners, representing interests of insurers, all while inspecting ships for safety on behalf of the U.S. government, was not a system that could be impartial, the Marine Board declared. This recommendation, credited to Caliccio, wasn't new. He wrote the, uh, the Marine Electric opinion, and his first two recommendations were to uh, 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 dealt with the Classification Society and dealt with uh, uh, the Coast Guard. And, and he, his recommendation was, very strong recommendation, was that uh, we go back to the way it was uh, after World War II, that there was an independent Bureau of Marine Inspection that would be uh, manned by, uh, by former, former seamen that understood what it was like going to sea. That's Brian Starrer, a maritime attorney specializing in shipping disasters who has handled scores of casualties. And to be fair, he sued ABS before, though his firm, Squire Patton Boggs, also represents classification societies. Starrer agrees that inspections carried out by an independent agency wouldn't have the inherent conflict that classification societies have. Independent eyes from an independent government organization that had no dog in the fight. Uh, if you think about uh, what goes on now, uh, ABS is a, it, it, they say they're a not-for-profit, but are they, are they really? Their, their job uh, is, to, uh, is to generate revenue for that, for that company. Uh, and, and that's the inherent conflict that's gone on here. Uh, whether this casualty would have occurred if you'd had an independent uh, Bureau of Marine Inspection looking at ships like the Alfaro and, the, and under the Jones Act, uh, I, I, I firmly believe the result probably would have been different. We probably would not, uh, would not have had a ship like that going out in that weather at that time of year uh, with... Uh, with with uh, with the risks involved with a forty year old vessel, independent as in something outside of the the Coast Guard, outside of the Coast Guard, outside of the, the American Bureau of Shipping, uh, a, a true Bureau of Marine Inspection. That's uh, uh, that's part of the part of the government. I mean, whether you whether you put it in the Department of Transportation or wherever you put it, it it's it's to be it's to be independent. Uh, and uh, we don't have that independence now. And, uh, and uh, if you've got to put your finger on something prior to 
to the actual casualty happening. That's where I put my finger. But in 1984, the Coast Guard Commandant disagreed. He wrote that, quote, there were no facts that show that ABS did not act impartially. He said surveyors failed to carry out their responsibilities in just two occasions. But that's it. This one sinking, he wrote, could not be used to condemn the entire system of marine inspection. Doing so would discount many years of ABS's service to the Coast Guard and thousands of what he called competent inspections by the Classification Society. The conclusion, he wrote, is without merit. This delegation of inspection duties to classification societies is still the way ship inspections work today for most ocean-going ships under the U.S. flag. And it's common around the world as well. And the U.S. is still considered something of a world leader in this area. But the probe into El Faro's sinking has led investigators to dig deeply into its inspections. And we'll explore that more as this podcast series progresses. But before we do that, want a bigger ship? Want to add a completely different kind of cargo? Rather than buy or build a new ship, try this out for size. Cut your existing ship in half, add a 90-foot-long midsection, and build a deck on top to carry containers. That'll be our next episode of The Sunken Lighthouse. Sunken Lighthouse was brought to you by the sponsorship of the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. This podcast is a production of Tradewinds, which is part of the NHST Media Group. Visit our website at tradewindsnews.com. This program was produced and reported by me, Eric Martin. A reminder to check out the other podcast by the NHST Media Group by our colleagues at Upstream. It's called The Bit and focuses on the oil and gas industry. A note about music. The songs Constance and Cool Vibes come from Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. Kevin's work can be found at incompetech.com. The songs Night Owl by Broke for Free, Running Waters by Jason Shaw, and Springish by Gillicuddy come from the Free Music Archive on a Creative Commons license. Other music comes from Purple Planet at purple-planet.com. Thanks to these providers for offering up their great work for free. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>